we are in part two of a series where we're going through the book of Acts. And if you're brand new with us this morning, it's a great Sunday to be here. And the reason is, is um, Acts, the book of Acts, A-C-T-S, is essentially the story of the early church. Um, when I was in high school, I was in a history class, and I remember I had a uh, history teacher that talked about his objection to Christianity. And it was essentially that the reason I don't believe uh, in Christianity or the Bible or, or, or Jesus is because, you know, no one even really sat down and wrote anything down for a few hundred years after, and then they just kind of wrote down what they remembered. And I think back and I think, and you were a history teacher. That's outrageous. Anyways, um, what's interesting about this is this is the story of the early church. In fact, this was written by a guy named Luke. Um, if you are familiar with the Bible, then let names probably familiar because there was a guy named Luke who wrote the book of Oh, look at you. Yeah, I was going to say, <clears throat> I was going to say Luke, but you went Acts. I like, I like that little swerve. Anyway, so he wrote the, wrote the book of Luke, which was the story of Jesus' life. He wrote it to his friend Theophilus, who probably hired him. Luke um, was a physician. Luke was a historian. Luke followed Peter around, most likely. Um, talked to Peter, got all the stories from Peter. Um, Luke would interview the eyewitnesses, because Peter was one of the main people, or persons who followed Jesus, and so he had access to all of the insiders. So Luke probably uh, interviewed lots of people, and he wrote a book called Luke to Theophilus, his friend, who probably hired him to give him an orderly account of the life of Jesus. Well, so then he parlays the book of Acts to say this, this then Theophilus, he begins in Acts chapter one, um, is a book written to him as well. And this accounts for the story of what happens when Jesus all of a sudden for the last time goes back into heaven for about 40 days after Jesus dies. Um, by the way, Jesus was crucified at this point. I don't know if you knew that. If, if, if you're not familiar with that part of Christianity, um, uh, spoiler alert, but Jesus died on a cross for about 40 days. He shows back up. And in the middle of chapter one, he goes up to heaven for the last time. Now, Jesus had instructions for those first few disciples. And this is what the instruction was. I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit to come down. It's going to take a couple days and we don't know why it was going to take a couple days. Was everything getting like prepped and shipped? Was this like an Amazon two-day shipping type thing where the Holy Spirit just had to get some, some work done first? But he was going to Jerusalem. They were going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to wait for the Holy Spirit to come down there. Now, this for them must have been a bit of a difficult ask and a difficult question. Here's why. Not less than two months ago, Jesus was in Jerusalem. And you know what happened when Jesus was in Jerusalem? He was crucified. He was brutally murdered and hung on a cross for all the world to see. In fact, right before he died, just to make sure he was dead, they got this spear and they threw it in his side and it said, and it hit his, basically it punctured his heart and blood and water flowed out. And so they're sitting there saying, okay, Jesus, I think there's probably some safer places that we can go besides Jerusalem to wait. Because I don't know if you remember or not, but not too long ago, you were crucified over there. And Jesus says, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit. And so what we're going to read about today is when the Holy Spirit first comes down and actually the first recorded sermon that there is in the church. This is the very first time anybody besides Jesus stood up and said, I am going to tell some people about the kingdom of God. Now, um, what's interesting, and I, thought, I find fascinating, is the subject or the point that he's going to get to. Peter's going to stand up and give a sermon. The, the point that Peter is going to give, I think for us, is still the same problem we wrestle with today. In the early church, he was convincing Jews that Jesus, this guy that walked around, was two things. He was both Lord and Savior. 
He was both God who rules and reigns and is to be deferred to in all things. And at the same time, he is the one that provides us our way into heaven. We're going to get into more of that in a second, but I want to kind of give you a little context. So Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost, so Pentecost was a Jewish festival, by the way. Pentecost was a big day for them. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were gathered together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. I like it's interesting that it doesn't say it is a wind. It's like a sound like a mighty rushing wind. That must have been the, the craziest thing to hear. Like all of a sudden this tornado that's about to hit, and yet no wind. But nonetheless, this mighty rushing wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, here's what that meant for them. That meant Holy Spirit just came down. They, they would look around, and they'd like, man, it's just these, 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 these tongues that are on fire. And I imagine that must have been a really difficult thing to describe because it's like, that's, that's, that's a weird thing to think, like sitting on top of me, right? There's this fiery tongue. It's like, okay. It's like somebody just ate a, ate a fireball gusher or something like that. And it's just, it's just sitting on top. And, and they're looking around, and the Holy Spirit comes down, and they start speaking in different tongues. Now, whenever you talk about tongues in church, it gets into a really interesting debate of what does that mean? What does that look like? Does it still exist? Well, for the purposes of this text, what that meant was that each of the different people started to speak in what we believe is preach the gospel or talk about God in different languages. For tongues in their context in this particular instance, that meant in different languages, they started to uh, articulate the gospel. So people start to hear this, starts to make a commotion. They're dwelling in Jerusalem. Verse 5. And so devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. They were probably in or around the temple at this point. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these those who are speaking Galileans? In other words, these are kind of ordinary common folks. These are like the people from Perry. You know, they don't say anything eloquent. They're not bilingual, multilingual. They're just, I mean, come on, man. They're, they speak redneck ease. He goes on, he lists a bunch of Parthians and Medes and, and on and on and on and on. Skip down to verse 11. He says, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and, Arab, and Arabians, we hear them telling... In our own tongues, the mighty work of God. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? In other words, what do we do about this? Now, you've got to imagine, you're, 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 you're a Jewish person in the day. You don't have a belief in Jesus. You can't look through the lens of history. You can't look through the lens of antiquity. All of a sudden, all you know is you went to Pentecost, you went to Jerusalem, which was the epicenter of all kind of the mono, you know, monotheistic Judeo-Christian thought back in the day, although it wasn't Judeo-Christian, it was just Judeo in the day. So they were in the temple, they were in Jerusalem, they were there at this feast, just like they had perhaps done every single year. And all of a sudden, this wind happens, this, this sound happens, these people start talking in different dialects. And they're sitting there saying, man, I thought we were just going to have Pentecost, just like last year. And so they say, what do, we, what do we do about this? How do we wrestle this? What do we make of this? Now, pause. One of the reasons I love the Bible 
is because I think the Bible is so honest and funny sometimes. Because when we read the scriptures, we have a tendency to view it through a Bible-y lens. Acts chapter 2, verse 13 is one of my favorite verses. One, because of the comment that's made, and two, because of the honesty of what was happening in the situation. Because again, we read the Bible like it's not actual people. We read the Bible as if it's not people who are going through a situation, who are living life, and who just showed up to this Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, everybody's speaking in different languages. It's about 9 a.m., by the way, and so they are astonished at what's happened. And so verse 13, somebody yells out, but others mock, saying, they are filled with new wine. Now, if you want me to translate the Bibleese, that means somebody in the back yelled out, Man, they're, not, they're just drunk. <laughs> to which we would look at and say, why would the Bible include that? And here's why, here's why I think it includes it. And here's why I think, here's why I love the Bible. Because it's honest, right? If all of a sudden, 9 a.m., you got this one crowd of people and this one crew of people, you know, they're kind of like a rowdy crew of people. You know how it is. Like you have like 10 different like friend groups and like nine of them you wouldn't expect that from with this one group. You're like, okay, I can see them drinking at 9 a.m., you know? And so there's one person, you know, stands up or these people stand up and said, man, they're, they're just, they're just filled with new wine. At least they're not drinking old wine. They're drinking new wine. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice. And by the way, the reason it says it's 11, at the end of chapter 10, they actually appointed someone to take Judas' spot. Judas is kind of a bitter ending to his tale, but we're not going to go all into that. But so they've got all the apostles. Peter stands up, lifts his voice, and addresses them. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Now, this is the introduction to the very first sermon given by anybody besides Jesus. And here's what he has to accomplish in his sermon. He has to convince these people who, frankly, in Jerusalem were the ones who were probably advocating for Jesus' crucifixion. Now, in Jerusalem, the reason Jesus died wasn't because Rome found him wildly sinful. It wasn't because he had done this huge thing wrong. In fact, if you have read that story and you've kind of, you know, parsed it out, then you know this. That in fact, the Roman government said, we don't find anything wrong with him. But they said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. To the probably exact same crowd or at least similar people to the ones who yelled, crucify him. He now had to convince that the one that they had crucified was, in fact, the Messiah. Now, you talk about a tough audience. This is a difficult audience to speak to. But this was a Jewish audience. So what he does is he, he reaches back and he's, he brings in some proofs that they would have been familiar with and helps them to understand how they substantiate or validate what they are currently experiencing. So this is what he says to them. Give ear to my words, verse 15. For these people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 o'clock, which I know for some of you, you're in college and you got kind of like a break right now. You're like, oh, 9 a.m., man, let's go for it. But we'll pray for your soul, okay? <clears throat> he says, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he reaches back and he says, what you're experiencing now. Let, let me translate, okay? Again, Jewish audience. Now, again, the Bible wasn't written for us. We have to gleam and kind of draw parallels to what the Bible was saying. But he's saying to these people, he says, okay, let me, let me remind you what Joel said back in the day. And this is what Joel said. 
He said, in the last days it shall be that God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Joel, by the way, prophet, Old Testament, long before Jesus walked on planet earth. He said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And this was huge because this was a culture, now mind you, this was a culture that was very much a patriarchal, not matriarchal search, uh, uh, system. In other words, they had huge value on men and women were, for the most part, commodities. As wrong as that was, Joel, a long time before this culture, which was even farther ahead than the, the, the culture that Joel prophesied, and says God is going to do something. And when he does something... When he works, when he moves, he is going to pour out his spirit on everyone, regardless of your race, regardless of your background, regardless of your gender, that he is going to pour out his spirit. They shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and the signs in the earth below. He goes into a little bit of imagery. He says, blood and fire, vapor and smoke, the sun shall turn to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. In the great magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He said, I'm telling you, what you're experiencing, this is, this is kind of the take home. What you're experiencing now, he would talk to his, his early Jewish audience. This is part of the fulfillment of what you remember from Joel. To which they would all be familiar. They'd all say, okay, yeah, of course. We learned it in little, you know, in, in, in little uh, Jewish, you know, Sunday school version. You know, we, we learned that in school. We learned it. We learned that in the Torah. We learned, we remember what we learned from the Old Testament, which they would just call the scriptures. They didn't see it as an Old Testament. We would remember Joel. He's saying, this is what you're experiencing. Now, like anybody else, this wasn't enough to substantiate all the claims of Jesus. So he goes on and says, let me continue to explain. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs. And signs that God did through him in your midst. And you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the, def the, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. <laughs> you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, this must have been a, um, <clears throat> I don't know if, if you, well, you're familiar with church or in church, so maybe if this is your first time, you're not as familiar, but this is like the... This is like the the part where the pastor gets like real serious and everybody feels terrible about their lives, you know. And he says, "By the way, um, this God, this Jesus, this Messiah, you killed him." Now we all have this kind of like derivative version of that, right? Where we know because of our sinfulness, Jesus had to die. That the understanding of what they understood and what Peter understood at this point was that we innately, as humans, as people, we've all made mistakes. We've all gone away from God. And because of that, God and his holiness were fundamentally incompatible with. And in that incompatibleness, we can't unsin ourselves. We can't make ourselves perfect. We can make ourselves better, but better is never good enough. Good is never good enough. Perfection is only what's good enough. And the problem is none of us can be perfect. For some of us, to be honest, we were raised in religious systems you were raised perhaps in a church environment that said, be better, be better, be better, be perfect. 
which was so demoralizing because you knew you couldn't. So you kind of threw your hands up and said, why try? Perhaps maybe, maybe for you, you're coming back to church for the first time in a long time. And that's the reason why it's kept you away for so long is because for so long it was be perfect, be perfect, be perfect. And that just seemed so inaccessible. You thought, why in the world would I waste my life chasing something that's so unattainable? But their understanding was that God never expected us to be perfect. That the reason for the laws, the reason for the rules, the reason for the morality, though it would perhaps be a better way to live, it was to prove to us that we aren't perfect, that we in fact needed a Savior. And that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he was the person, he was the thing, he was the sacrifice that would cause the relational rift between us and God to all of a sudden be repaired. When we accepted that payment, it's like a huge traffic fine that I couldn't afford to pay. And God said, I'll pay it for you. Here's the payment. It's my son. He says, but let me tell you, this was the definitive plan of God. This was the definite plan of God. But in case you're wondering for the early church, who's to blame? You were the ones shouting and yelling. And I don't know what, the, what was going through Peter at this point. I mean, perhaps it was, it was that the Holy Spirit was so like prevalent and they just saw tongues of fire and they think, man, if I just saw a tongue of fire, who cares what happens next? Or, or maybe there was some fear going on inside of it. It's difficult to tell, but he continues on and he says, you know, this, this one that you crucified, that you handed over. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, so he says, okay, we're going to talk about Joel. A huge uh, figure in the Old Testament was a, was a guy named King David. King David, you perhaps know him from David and Goliath. David became king. To them, David was the greatest king in the history of Israel. Everybody knew that David was the greatest king. Everybody knew that there was going to come a Messiah through the lineage of David. So he says, okay, we all know David. We all love David. This is like someone who loves basketball saying, we all know Michael Jordan. We all love Michael Jordan. Some of you guys think Kobe Bryant's better than LeBron. You don't know basketball very well. But for the rest of us, you know, we all, he says, come on, we all love King David. So let me tell you what King David said. He said, I, I saw the Lord always before me, reaches back from the Psalms, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. This is the important part. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, they would have a difficult time with this because David died. He's saying, you, David would prophesy and said, you will not let my soul corrupt. You will, not let, you will not abandon me and let me see corruption. To which, again, they would have a difficult time because David died. And so Paul, in verse, or some Peter in verse 28 he explains this to him. 29. He says, Brothers, I may say to you that with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to, to this day. Being therefore a prophet, in other words, that couldn't have been about David, but being a prophet, because he was king and he was prophet, and knowing that God sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his de of descendants on this throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Now, some of us think Christ is Jesus' last name. It wasn't. Christ is the New Testament word for the Old Testament word Messiah. 
He says, David saw this. And when David said this, he says, let me translate to you in light of what has happened. That David saw, David foreknew, David understood that there was going to come a Messiah. There was going to come a resurrection. In fact, at this point, right, in Jerusalem, for the last 40 days, Jesus has showed up and showed up and showed up. And as with anything, if that were to happen, people would start to talk about it. There would be a buzz going about in the city. He says, okay, you've heard this buzz that Jesus has shown up. In fact, some of you, you probably saw when Jesus showed up, and you didn't know how to explain it, but you saw it. And then all of a sudden, you hear this thing. You see these tongues. You see this, you know, there's this wind. You see you hear these people talking these different languages. He says, let Let me interpret all of this for you. This was that God who David said this was going to happen to. This Jesus God raised up, and we, by the way, are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing of. It's in you are experiencing it. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, and let me pause and say, if you're new to the Bible and you kind of read this on your own, this is the part where it gets a little bit difficult and a little bit tricky because you read this and you're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. (laughs) It's like, okay, I was tracking for a while, right? I mean, I was tracking like the whole Holy Spirit, the different tongues, you know, okay, I understand what you're saying with Joel. And I understand the second part where David, you know, had prophesied and said that there was going to be a resurrection. We've heard this thing's a resurrection. Okay, I understand the connection. But all of a sudden, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What in the world does that mean? Now, I think, I think that Peter at this point was going a little bit old school. In fact, for them, it wasn't old school. This was the first sermon. I think he was getting a little hellfire and brimstone because here was about to be his point. This Jesus, this Jesus that was raised from the dead is now Lord and Savior. And by the way, you killed him. Now, I don't know if you know what an enemy is, but there's a good chance if you were the one who was responsible for killing me, you would be my enemy. I think at this point he's saying, come on, come on. Just, just, just to let you know, if you are the enemy of God, you're, if you're in opposition to this, the people who handed Jesus over to be killed would be the ones that would be responsible. He says, until I make your enemies your footstool, and so, verse 36, so let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let me tell you why I think that that verse. This is the bottom line point that from this point they just say, okay, what do we do with this? This is why I think that was so important. He was convincing the audience. He was convincing the early Jewish audience that he is both Lord and he is Savior. He is both Lord and and he is saved. He says, come on, let's look at all of the data. Let's look at all of the evidence. Let's look at what the prophet said, because in their, in their day and age, um, the prophets hold ex- held extraordinary weight. Let's look at what the prophet said. Come on, let's look at how what's happening, what we've experienced, what we've seen, has substantiated the, the, the things that, that the prophets talked about back in the day. And let me just tell you, you don't want to be an enemy of God. This Jesus, who, by the way, you crucified, he would say, you have to acknowledge or you have to see that God has not just made him a prophet, not just made him a person, not just made him a religious leader. He, in fact, is God and Messiah. 
The reason I think that's important is I think we live in an age and a culture, especially as Christians. This isn't like culture as a whole. This is like Christian culture where it's easy to want Jesus to be either Savior or Lord. We oftentimes want him to be either Savior or Lord. And here's what what I mean by that. He was convincing them that he's got to be both. He can't be Savior without being Lord. And if he's Lord, then he is Savior because he died. But for many of us, I think we live in this, in this context where we want to have both. Or we want to have either or. I'm sorry, not both. We want, in other words, the salvation of Jesus. We want to be good with God. We want forgiveness from our sins. But we don't want to necessarily acknowledge him as Lord. Because to acknowledge him as Lord would mean that we would have to defer to him with our entire life. My experience is we want to acknowledge him as Messiah. We want to acknowledge him as the saving power, the saving grace that ultimately ultimately offered sacrifice on the cross. But when it comes to our lives, we want to acknowledge him as Lord in the areas where it's easy for us to acknowledge him as Lord. And for each of us, that area is different. Because we all have our own unique things and our own unique struggles and our our own unique ideas. So we want to acknowledge that you're Lord in some areas. But let's be honest. There are areas of our lives for each and every one of us that is difficult to defer to God. Because we think we know better. Or at least we act like we do. I think there's a, probably a cognitive dissonance. I think we would all, if you're a Christian, you would acknowledge that God knows best. But yet we act how we want to. And I don't need to go into like a ton of specifics with that, but just to name a few. Let's just take some easy ones, actually. I mean, we think we know what's best with our time. We know when we see throughout the scriptures that what's best with, one of the best uses of our time is to daily spend time with God. Jesus would go to him oftentimes in the morning and spend time in prayer but we're busy. And I don't know if you know, you know, God, what it's like, Jesus, you didn't have, you know, infants and toddlers. And so you don't know how busy that life is. And we got to pick up and drop off and kids with sports, right? Oh my gosh. How in the world can anybody do all of that? And so God, I know, I know that this is probably a good prioritization of my time, but here's what you don't see or understand. God, I know, um, I know that you've called me in relationship to my spouse or whoever will be my future spouse to live a life of purity because purity paves the way to intimacy and purity honors God. But God, you don't understand. People get married a lot older now than they used to. And this is just what feels right for me now. I got, I understand that to acknowledge you as Lord would mean that, that ultimately you are over everything. And in you being over everything, you, you mean just any area, any relationship with my job, with my future, like I just want to control that, God. With my money, I know that the way the Bible talks about it is that I am simply a manager that, that God has entrusted me with all of this stuff. And I'm not going to take it any, of, any of it with me when I die, but I am simply managing for the time that I have here. But God, I want to use everything that I have earned for my personal consumption. And not to realize that you have given me an opportunity to invest in eternity. You see, I think for for lots of us, there's there's a bunch of different areas where it's easy to acknowledge him as Lord. 
And if I'm being honest, I don't even think that's the biggest tragedy in this. I think that's the easy go-to. That's the easy cause and effect. I think the biggest tragedy when we want Jesus to be Savior, which, by the way, in case you've ever studied this, um, the New Testament acknowledges Jesus as Lord over Messiah, not over Messiah, but in more times than Messiah, probably four or five to one. For every one time that says Messiah, there's four or five that says, no, he is God, he is God, he is God. And I think the biggest tragedy that we have is that when we fail to acknowledge God as Lord, when we fail to acknowledge that, God, you are everything, God. You are over everything, God. I submit to you and everything. Everything I have is yours. Here's the biggest tragedy. We basically say, God, I want your blessings, but I don't want you. I want what you have for us. I want the, the forgiveness. I don't want to feel bad about all the bad stuff that I've done, but, God, I... I I know that you probably know best, but God, here's the, here's the problem at the end of the day is that I just don't value getting you having a relationship with you, my God. This is like, this is like if, if, if you came home and you're a parent and you came home from the airport, right, and you just went on this trip and you were gone for a couple of days and you know that the best thing that happens when you come home from trips, if you're a kid, is your parent brings you something, right? And <laughs> it's a funny story. Lindsay and I went to um, Nashville not too long ago. And so we, you know, on the way home, we're thinking, dang, dang it, we forgot to get the kids something. And Avery and Rhodes, if you listen to this 15 years from now, we, we love you. But <clears throat> we... We uh, had these, um, went to the airport in Nashville and we got these little um, dolls and they were, you know, outrageously overpriced. It probably cost 99 cents, but they charged us like 20 bucks. And so we, we got both of them these little like, you know, not dolls, teddy bear type things. And so we're walking out in the Tallahassee airport and Lindsay's mom's going to pick us up and the kids are going to be there. And we flew American Airlines. So obviously our flight was delayed. But that's a different sermon illustration for a different day. And so as we're walking out, you know, Lindsay's mom had texted her and said, hey, you know, there's don't, you know, the kids really want some, some candy or some Skittles as a thing. So we like showed up and we like on the way out of the airport, got these like, you know, $1 box of Skittles and gummy bears. And we get out of the car and we're like, we got these, these, these dolls. And they're like, cool. And like, and Skittles. And they're like, oh my gosh, you know, they're going nuts about this thing that's just really kind of inconsequential. But this would be like the equivalent of my kids saying, okay, dad, I want the gifts that you brought me, but I could care less that you're home. My kid, now, that's not how my kids are. They, they, they love us. They, they care about us. And of course, of course, it doesn't have to be either or. It doesn't have to be, I'm going to take this one, but leave that one. But can you imagine as a kid, the attitude to say, I don't care about you. I don't care about the relationship with you. I don't care about you caring about me and me caring about you. I just care about what you can bring to me. You know, the other side of it, we get the opportunity we get the opportunity to have God, the God of the universe, the God who sustains all things by the power of his mighty word. We get to have a personal relationship with that God, a God who not only died on the cross for us and gives his spirit to us generally, but inside of each one of us who have acknowledged and put our faith, our hope, and our trust in him, we have his spirit living inside of us. It's personal. It's deeply personal. Yet sometimes we just don't want to acknowledge that. When we love the Messiah, but in the areas where it's tougher, we disagree, we disagree and distance ourselves from his lordship. I think this is the fundamental difference 
between a Christian and a cultural Christian. You guys know living in the South, man, it's easy. It's easy to say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not Hindu, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not, you know, Islamic, and so, you know, I'm, I'm not really an atheist, I've got some questions, but, you know, <clears throat> so because I was raised in the South, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I, I agree with Jesus. I acknowledge that he's probably right and he's probably true. I think this is the difference between having a general cultural deference towards God and a relationship with Jesus is not do you agree, not do you identify, but is he actually your Lord? Because if he is, then he determines everything. I have a really, really nerdy last illustration of this. Back in the day, there used to be some kind of like a, I don't even know what this game was called. It's like a Dungeons and Dragons-ish type game, which is never really my thing. But I was spending at a friend's house, and like you would click on this one guy, and he would go and he would build something, and he'd build this little city, and then you'd build up an army, and then you'd do a bunch of stuff, and you'd go kill people, and you know, it's probably too, you know, <clears throat> gruesome for our age bracket. But you know, you click on them, and, they, and here's what they say, ready to serve my Lord. Ready to serve my Lord. And I think that's the acknowledgement that God, I get you in whatever you say. God, I trust you. I know you. You sent your son to die for me. So God, whatever you want, wherever you want it, I'm ready. So the, the audience hears this. When we heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, which by the way, this is an interesting um, uh, literary thing that he does because Jesus in that city not too many days ago was pierced to the heart with a spear that they crucified him and they were now cut to the heart with his spirit. And the rest of the apostles, and they said, brothers, what shall we do? I love the fact that this is Peter's first sermon because he didn't even give application. He just says, you killed him. <laughs> They're like, cool, man. Like, like, so what do we do with that? And he said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He says, so, so here's the application. You see what you were doing and you don't do it anymore. You see the way that you were walking in and you stop walking in it. You see that you were walking towards this one thing, you repent. You don't just say, I'm sorry. Though that's part of it. You repent and you acknowledge your sinfulness. You repent and you acknowledge that I have done wrong. You, you repent. And, and, and in that, you turn and you say, okay, now I am going to walk towards God. So powerful. Because it's easy. It's easy to walk towards God. But some of us, we just want to repent and try to do it on our own. And he says, no, 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 no. No, you can't do it on your own. You need to walk towards God. You need to walk towards Jesus. You need to repent from that stuff. You need to go towards God. He says, be baptized. You'll get the Holy Spirit. And that, those, those are, that's a whole different sermon that I honestly don't have time for just to talk about how all those things kind of separate out. But I think the message is so clear. And it was so clear then that at that, that point about 3,000 people began to believe. Now, here's, here's how I want to end today. <clears throat> I want us to take communion together. Because I think the real acknowledgement of this begins with the acknowledgement of Jesus' death and his resurrection. His death on the cross. The night before Jesus died, he got all of his believers, he got all of his disciples together, his apostles, his close ones, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you, this is my blood which is shed for you. 
So when you take this and when you eat it, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And here is the beautiful thing about Christianity. Here's the beautiful thing about God is that his call to our lives to repent, his call to our lives to declare him as Lord, his call to our lives to submit everything we are to him was not just to say you should do it or you're bad people. The declaration is I am going to give everything to you. I am going to have my body brutally broken for you. And not to make you feel bad, but when you realize that, you gladly and willingly say, God, if you, God, if you, almighty God, would do that for me, I will give everything back to you. Because I am so deeply thankful and appreciative. I'm overwhelmed at what you did for me. So as we come you know, together in just a minute and we take communion, I want you to be overwhelmed by the love of God. And I'm hoping that compels and inspires you to declare what so many people declared that day, that he is Lord and he is Messiah. He is Lord and Savior. He is Lord and the Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. I thank you for all the ways and all the things that you did for us on the cross. And though we sometimes have a tendency, we often have a tendency to want to acknowledge you as Lord, to want to acknowledge you as Savior, but not give you everything in our lives. And sometimes that just means that we want the blessing of forgiveness without the extraordinary blessing of the relationship. So, Jesus, we repent. We say we're sorry. We want to turn from that life. But we want to turn from that life and give you our lives as a response for the fact that you gave us yours. We are compelled to love you, to serve you, to give you everything because you first loved and served and gave everything for us. And I pray that today as we take communion together, you would overwhelm us with your sacrificial love and we would be able to do nothing but declare you as Lord and Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.